Good morning. And I think the answer is, if you can put yourself in her shoes and read what little else Scripture tells us about it, she couldn't. She marveled. She was an ordinary woman. Nothing special about her. In her own song of praise to the Lord, when she receives this announcement, she rejoices and confesses herself in need of a Savior and marvels at all that, of all that God is doing in her. That's what we're celebrating this Christmas, that God has acted in human history, that He loved you so much that He put it in writing. He put His promises, His work, His history, His character, His goodness, His judgment, it's all in writing so that it can be examined, so that He can be known. And having given Scripture and having given prophets to make promises about Him, He came, not in written form, not through another prophet, but He came in human flesh to be born among us, live among us, delight and astound His mother, Joseph, who took Him on as His own son and became His guardian. You'll never get over it. And I hope this morning, as we read Scripture together, you'll marvel again, as they must have, as you hear the story of the birth and the genealogy of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so very much. Thank you for all those who are here. Thank you for those who know they're broken and hurting. Thank you for those, Lord, who are here as well and they're enjoying a sweet season and all is right in their world. You are God and Lord over all of that and you can meet each one of us according to our need. Bless us, our marriages, our friendships, our children. Lord, may, do your good work in us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. How's your Sunday going so far? Mine has been strange. I lost my cell phone this morning. I know, right? Like, why is that such a terrible… I was at dinner last night with, with one of the best guys I know, and he said he was 20 minutes from home driving along, realized his cell phone was still at home, and he screamed, no! And then he thought, I need to call my wife and tell her, and you ever do that? Well, it's been kind of an absurd morning, and I'm telling you this because you might want to pray for me, because it was such an absurd morning, I realized my phone was lost. I eventually located it inside my car. I had this other device, as you do, I have one device locating the other and one device pinging the other, all four doors open. I can hear it. I cannot find it. <laughs> this goes on for so long that one of my neighbors comes out and jumps in and starts helping. So you've got two grown men on all fours crawling around the car, basically making circles around it, checking the other's work. We can hear it. The seat is vibrating. We know it's in there somewhere. I began to imagine that somehow it was inside one of the seat cushions or maybe underneath the car. We finally found it. I got here 30 minutes later than intended, 7.30 instead of 7 a.m., as is my hope and goal. And then he texted me and said, hey, I lost my contact lens looking for your phone, so if you could… <laughs> it's that kind of morning. And I just about told Jim it's his turn and just uh, headed on home. And turn the phone I found off. But this morning, we're in a mysterious, often skipped part of the Bible. Open your Bibles, please, in Matthew chapter 1.
Matthew chapter 1. And if you look at the first part of Matthew chapter 1, if you're a Bible reader, you'll probably realize you've skipped this part because it's a list. It's a list and, and a, a strange list, frankly, slightly bewildering. Life is random and strange. That's how two men end up crawling around one man's car early on Sunday morning. And life is just filled with little absurd encounters. Years ago, I was with another pastor friend from the Pacific Northwest in the uh, town where hope goes to die, El Paso, Texas. Uh, if you've been there, you, you understand. I grew up four hours south of there in Mexico, so you've got a, a guy from Mexico and a guy from, uh, from Washington having lunch where you go when hope dies, which is called the Golden Corral in El Paso, Texas. <laughs> and think about what they're telling you, right? What do they put in corrals? So ask, consider what the marketing is inviting you to believe and know about yourself when you choose to go there. But there we are inside the corral, eating like you do, stained with gravy and, and just going for it. And there inside Golden Corral in El Paso, Texas, is my grandfather, who doesn't live in El Paso either. We didn't know he was there. He didn't expect us. But my grandfather on my dad's side was the first believer in our family. He was, frankly, a rotten, evil man until Jesus came in, changed his life, made him into a Christian, and a Christian who became a pastor. And it was just this really neat, absurd, unexpected little blessing from God that here's two, at that time, very young pastors talking to this old pastor who's now right before retiring, and I thought to myself, this is an opportunity. This is the man who, on my father's side of the family, first met Christ. I'm going to ask him for wisdom. And since my buddy's along, we'll both benefit. I said, Grandpa, any, any parting words of wisdom for two young preachers? He looks at me and he says, study the genealogies. That's, that's strange. And I basically ignored him for a long time and didn't do it. Because a genealogy is a list. You're looking at it. If you run your eyes over it, your eye will be caught by a few things that jump out at you maybe as important, but the genealogies get obscure and strange very, very quickly. They're just lists, and people treat lists in our culture with contempt. We scribble them on scraps of paper. We dictate them quickly into our phones. We just need little reminders of what we're going to the grocery store. Many times I've dug out somebody else's discarded list out of the grocery cart and thrown it away. Lists just aren't particularly important. They're generally temporary. Not this one. You see, God acted in human history, and He acted publicly. Unlike other religious and spiritual claims, everything relating to Christ is done in public. It does not consist of a man having a private revelation and telling everybody, everybody else what he saw or heard. God's work is done out in public with names and pointing to events and to people. And Matthew is an unlikely disciple. Matthew was a little bit, at least in that regard, like my grandpa and other scoundrels in our family, including me. Matthew was a Jewish man who had sold his nation out and become, in Jesus' day, a tax collector for the Roman government. In other words, he was an admitted traitor to his own nation, enriching himself with 
probably, almost certainly, charging too much tax to salve his conscience and to make it worth his while that he's actually working on behalf of an occupying army. But one day, Jesus comes along to the tax collecting booth, says to Matthew, follow me. Matthew stands up and does. I always wondered what happened next in the line, the people who were about to pay taxes. It's a good day for them too, because the tax collector's leaving. And Matthew, keenly aware of his nation's history, writes as a Jew to Jews. And Matthew's gospel, more than all the others, has citations from the Hebrew Scriptures. What Matthew's trying to do is help Jews in his time believe what seems incredible and make the connection that Jesus is the one that they have been promised, that He's the one that the prophets had in mind. He's the one they preached about. He's the one they committed to writing. And the best and the most Jewish way to do that in the ancient world that Matthew and Jesus both lived in is to begin with the book of the genealogy. And to say specifically how this man came here, that's why you can learn actually a great deal about God from a list. Matthew 1 verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, as Jewish, as regal, as important as it gets. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. His name and his title are mentioned, Jesus Christ. Let me explain to you from those important names what we're talking about. Jesus means, literally in Hebrew, Yahweh saves. If Yahweh rolls off your tongue a little bit strangely, it's a good reason for that. It's Hebrew. It is the personal name of God. Way back in Exodus 3, when God finally decided, after centuries of slavery, to rescue His people from Egypt, an unbelieving, fearful man said, who do I tell them is sending me? And God speaks the words, I am, and Yahweh is a Hebrew word built on the construction, I am, and God is saying, my name, the one I will always be known by, is simply, I am. I'm just here. I just am. I'm eternal. I'm unchanging. I simply exist. I do not change. All of that is wrapped up in that simple name, Yahweh, and Jesus specifically means that God, this eternal God, the one who is outside of time, who simply exists because He's the creator and the definer of everything else who defines and is reality, He's the one that's going to save. Because the most natural impulse in human beings is to save themselves, to do your own thing, to find your own way, to, as that abused karaoke song says, to do it your way. Jesus means Yeshua, Yahweh, saves. And it was a common name. There were boys named Yahweh, saves, God is salvation, all over Israel at that time. And there's a good reason for that. They're hopeful. Everybody wants to give their son a good name. Everyone, everybody wants to give their daughter a name that will honor them, that will make their way in life a little bit easier. And we often name our children for 
heroes of the past or hopes of the future. And that's why there are so many boys running around in Israel named Jesus. Nothing extraordinary about that name. Everybody's hoping, everybody's wanting. In Jesus' time, they're looking at Roman oppressors. They're looking at Roman centurions who have authority over them to do things like compel them to walk a mile with the soldier's pack and saying, how did we ever get here? We read in the Scripture how God loved us and was faithful to us and gave us Abraham and gave us later a thousand years ago, King David, how did we ever come to this reduced state where we have religious freedom, but it's guarded by Roman soldiers, and if they tire of us, they'll kill us where we stand and worship? Something that Pilate actually did in Jesus' day. So they keep naming their boys. Yahweh saves, Yahweh saves, Yahweh saves, and an ordinary name becomes an expression of national hope that one day the Lord God Almighty will act again in human history after so much silence and so much pain and so much suffering and rescue them. All of that is wrapped up in the name Jesus. But you'll notice, Matthew says, I'm telling you the book of the genealogy of Jesus, what? Christ. And most people say, well, that's his last name. (laughs) No, it's not a name at all. It's a title. It's a Greek word. You've got Greek and Hebrew culture standing side by side in two words. It's the Greek word Christos, which is the exact same meaning as the Hebrew word, more well-known perhaps, Messiah. And Christ means anointed one. And again, that's so Jewish because all through their history, when God set certain people aside for special saving service and worship to Him, they would be anointed. And it was a sacred and public occasion where people could see the one being anointed and they would say of the one receiving that oil, pouring down his head, he's special. God sent him for a special reason. He sent him for us. So, in this book of the genealogy, right from the beginning, Matthew tells you, I'm speaking to you about Yahweh saves, but this is not your neighbor's boy. His name is not only aspirational. It's not expressing only a hope. This is actually the one that God sent. And what this means is, and what the list tells me first is, God promised from the very beginning of Scripture, from His first dealings with us, God promised to save undeserving people. And I know that because of the length of this book. It's kind of big and kind of intimidating, isn't it? Editors are doing all that they can to make it accessible to us. I met a cute little boy before the first service who's running around with a Bible with um, footballs and baseballs and soccer balls printed on the outside of the pages. The cutest little thing ever. They're trying to make this accessible, but it's quite a bit. 66 books, 1,189 chapters. Why am I telling you this? Because human ruin and sin and death and the destruction of everything that matters in in God's creation happens in the third chapter of this big book. In Genesis chapter 3, we meet Satan, the tempter. Human beings think that they know better than God for the first time in human history. They disobey God deliberately, and sin enters and ruins everything, including the first human marriage. Years ago, I, had a mar- I was 
leading a marriage ministry that someone else started. It was called Genesis 2. I inherited the name and I understood it. In Genesis 2, marriage is perfect. It's, again, aspirational. If we were more honest, we would have called it Genesis 3, but hoping in God's grace, but that's a bit much to put on a card. But Genesis 2 expresses not hope, but perfection and enjoyment. In Genesis chapter 3, everything's ruined, and in 1,189 chapters, everything is not made right in human history until chapter 1,188 all the way to the next, to the last chapter in the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible. Everything in between is hard and filled with disappointment and filled with death, filled with betrayal and human frailty and all kinds of trouble. But God, from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 into the middle of all that carnage and loss and destruction and shame, because for the first time in human history, in Genesis chapter 3, we're told that men and women experience shame. Shame before God so that they hid from Him. Shame amongst themselves that they tried to cover themselves. Shame in the first marriage because they could not bear to look at one another. And into all of that, in Genesis 3.15, God appears and God speaks, and He said this cryptic message. God is speaking to Satan. And said this, I will put enmity, war, conflict, rivalry. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And here's a first promise in Scripture. Her offspring, in other words, one born of a woman will bruise your head and you shall bruise his and you read that and you go, what now? I don't get it. What's he talking about? In plain language, God is promising that someone from this woman who has been shamed and lost, who is now filled with regret, one of her offspring will appear, and he, a ordinary human being, will crush the devil's head even as that devil wounds that man's heel. It's very poetic. It's almost mystical. What does it mean? That the son of the woman, eventually we come to understand as this comes into sharp focus, as the story unfolds and God explains himself more and more and everything comes into focus and shrinks down and takes the exact shape of Jesus, that Jesus will suffer a grievous wound. He will actually be killed on the cross, but because of his death and his temporary suffering, evil itself will be destroyed. And God will make everything that is wrong right again. Why? Because God promised from the very beginning to save people who didn't deserve it. That promise came into better and sharper focus just a few chapters in Genesis chapter 12. A man named Abram is growing up with the pain and the fear of having no children. That means that he has no future in the ancient world. No one will work the land. No one will care for him in his old age. He's staring perhaps, all kinds of trouble in the face if other people in the family cannot help him during his lifetime. And to that childless man, because God is going to get all the credit in this story, he's going to use ordinary people like you and me, but he's going to get all the credit because it is Yahweh, it is the eternal one who saves. People will have nothing to do with their own salvation. God is going to save them. They're going to get the good and he's going to get the glory. 
God said to that man in what is now modern-day Iraq, Abram would have grown up in his ancestry as a moon-worshiping Chaldean. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country where those moon-worshippers live. Go from your pagan country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Here's a promise. Here's the next step in what was promised in Genesis 3.15. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Read the rest of it with me. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see yourself in that verse? All the families, all the tribes, all the clans, all the peoples of the earth, all the ethnicities, all the people groups, all the colors, they will all be blessed through you, through your offspring. That's how someone like me, with some strange mixture of Cherokee and English and German, comes to know Christ because God promised from the very beginning to save all kinds of undeserving people wherever sin had spread, wherever death had come. God Himself had promised to save any and all who needed Him, and it's coming now into focus. And as I continue reading in this genealogy, I find, frankly, some obscure names that I barely know how to pronounce. I find names of people whose story I don't know, but I find something surprising that jumps out. Maybe this is what my grandpa meant by that strange advice in the Golden Corral back in El Paso. Look in verse 3. Some names jump out. They jump out because they're the names of women. Verse 3 says, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Verse 5 says, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Rahab the father of Obed by Ruth. The last line in verse 6 says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And finally, at the end in verse 16, it says, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And now you know who is called the Anointed One. Well, it doesn't surprise you because we live in a much more egalitarian society. It doesn't occur to us in 21st century America that a woman is actually worth less than a man. She's not. Never has been. Men and women, it says in Genesis, are both made in the image of God, dearly loved, special creations, objects of His care and His faithfulness. But one of the things that sin did in the ancient world and to this present day everywhere, including in our culture, is diminish women. And the names of women jump out in a genealogy because they don't particularly matter in a genealogy. Your descendants in the ancient world only matters through your father, really. Where do the women come in? And then if you dig a little bit into your stories, you can see that they've been selected not because they're notable or important, sometimes on the contrary. There's sad stories behind these names. In one of the darkest chapters in the entire Bible, so gritty that I wouldn't read it with children present, in Genesis 38, Judah, of whom we sing and remember from Scripture that Jesus is from the tribe and He is called the Lion of Judah, 
That great patriarch is the kind of man who is going down the road, sees a prostitute, finds a woman, and goes into her. And he raised a family so wicked that one of his sons was killed by God. His other son proved to be equally immoral, and Judah himself proved to be the kind of man who actually unknowingly slept with Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who in her desperation prostituted herself secretly to him. It's all in Genesis 38. And in this beautiful narrative of what God is doing through the patriarchs and salvation is advancing, there's a little aside where the author of Genesis, Moses, says, let me tell you about Judah. Let me tell you how wicked he became at a certain point in his life. Shameful, ugly. Rahab's name is more famous because she's mentioned several times in Scripture, specifically as Rahab, the old King James says, ugly word, the harlot. And you read that when Israel entered the promised land, they, two spies that had come in to spy out the land took refuge in her house, probably a lodge or a tavern of some kind that was built into the side of the wall. And a woman who had chosen, I'm sure, in desperation, nobody chooses that life. That is a life of degradation and shame, and people are pushed into it and do it because they have no hope and no other means of survival. A woman who lives in the side of the city wall has prostituted herself. And what that means, I think, is that everyone in the city knows what kind of woman this is because they see strangers coming in from the roads and from the city itself continually going in and out of her house, and they know what kind of woman she is. But she's a woman of faith because she says to the spies, I'll give you refuge, I'll hide you, we know what kind of God you serve, please save me and my family. And they say, if you put a red cord out the window so the soldiers will know who you are, we promise you'll be safe. And Rahab, whose name will forever be associated with prostitution, is in the lineage of the great king and the sinless Jesus. Ruth actually was a woman of godliness. She turned and said to her mother-in-law, your God will be my God. Why is she mentioned and what is notable about her? She was from the wicked nation of Moab, a nation so awful that it explicitly says in the law of Moses, the Moabites will never be in the assembly of Israel. They can't come. Why? Because they did detestable things like this. They took their newborn children and placed them in the arms of burning idols and sacrificed living babies in fire. That's who the Moabites were. And then the last woman named before Mary is not named at all. And that's surprising. It says the wife of Uriah. And in these last few years, as powerful men have been exposed as predators, some activists who have worked hard to expose that have said of the victims, if she wants to identify herself, remember, she has a name, you use it. Tell her story. She's a person. She matters, and the people are named. Why isn't the wife of Uriah named? You know her name from elsewhere. What's her name? Bathsheba. Why isn't she named? Because Matthew is deliberately highlighting the great sin of King David. Because Uriah was not just some man in Israel. He was one of David's special soldiers. 
If you want to put Uriah and his military service to King David, you'd have to think of some kind of combination of a secret service protective detail agent and a special operations soldier. David victimized Uriah's wife and brought her to the palace because when David should have been out in the field with his men fighting as Uriah was, David was taking it easy in his palace. And he saw her, he desired her, and the king said, bring her to me. And he got her pregnant. And all of his trickery could not convince Uriah to go back home and sleep with his wife to cover the king's sin. And David decided to send Uriah back to the battle with his death warrant in his own hand to put him at the front of the line. And when the fighting is hottest, the rest of you fall back and let him die. This isn't a beautiful genealogy. It's very selective. Matthew is skipping entire generations. Why is he showing you these names? Because he wants you to know that God has decided of his own glorious and goodwill to save people who don't deserve it. And very importantly, the second truth I learned from this list is this. Human weakness and shame and evil cannot stop God from saving. You see, in that list, there is every kind of person and every kind of virtue and vice, sometimes in the same man, sometimes in the same woman. There are criminals and victims. There are evil people and people who are capable of great acts of faith and heroism. And finally, we come to Mary and Joseph, who finds himself stunned by this news that his virginal fiancé is actually already pregnant, he steps into the story and he is given this promise and this assurance from God. Matthew 1, verse 21, read it with me. It says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. What are you being told? What is the genealogy telling you that you can't go too far in your sin to overcome the love and the faithfulness of God? that he will pursue you. It is Corrie Ten Boom, an amazing woman who survived the Nazi Holocaust after trying to help and to hide Jews in the Netherlands. After her entire family died, she came out of that experience after seeing evil as incarnate as it can be on this earth and said, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. That's what this list tells you. That's why as you keep reading in the Gospel of Matthew, you read this in Matthew chapter 4. It says, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, and that's 700 years earlier, might be fulfilled. Here's Jesus' ministry in a few words. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, in other words, this fishing region that is filled with the pagan nations, where pagans are coming and going through Israel, this backwater of no particular importance except it produces so much fish for the rest of the nation. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That light has a name, and his name is Jesus. That's why it says from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a big statement. Here's what it means. 
The kingdom of God is close, Jesus says, because the king is on earth. The king of all creation is actually walking among the earth and the people that sin has ruined. He has come to give them light where they've been sitting in darkness, and all they have to do, Jesus says, is repent. That literally means to turn around, to make a U-turn, to stop the way you're going and come back the way He's telling you. You see, because God Himself decided to save undeserving people, and there's nothing in the human experience, no matter of weakness, no deprivation, no depravity, nothing anyone can do can stop God from saving once He has decided to save. But the great problem is that most people don't believe they need any saving. Regarding the God who saves, people fall into a ditch on either side of the road. They're both bad. They, keep, they both keep you off God's path. The first ditch, which is much bigger, is where people say, saved from what? Forgiven from what? And very few people, only probably extreme sociopaths, would deny that they've done things wrong. But what people do is we grade on a scale. We say something like, well, look, listen, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but have you met that guy? I mean, I'm, I'm not great, but oh, man, my neighbor, my cousin, my brother-in-law, oh, man, now there's a guy who needs to go to church. There's a guy who needs to hear about sin. He knows all about it. And one side of the road is a great ditch filled with people who say, I don't need rescuing. I'm not doing that great, but I'm going to figure it out. And to those people, Jesus would say, repent, turn around. I'm here, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The ditch on the other side of the road doesn't have nearly as many people, but I've met a few. They're not proud, they're crushed. And things that have either been done to them as victims and things that they have responded in to that stimulus and things that they've done themselves have put them so far from their own idea of what good looks like and they feel so dirty and so ashamed and so worthless that I've had a handful of people in two different countries tell me, if you knew what I've done, you wouldn't talk to me about a God who can love me, not me. To those people, these names should leap out, that it doesn't matter where you've gone, what you've done, it doesn't matter what has been done to you. Yahweh, the Eternal One, has come to save in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And the best thing simply about Jesus is that all of the promises that God has made are all kept in Christ. 1,189 chapters, I read you the first promise. In Genesis 3.15, maybe you'll want to write in the margin that that is the first preaching of the gospel. It's just a hint, but it is a promise that someday someone will come, the rest of the Bible, across all these years and through three different languages, through 40 different authors, across some 1,400 years, all tells you of all the promises that God has made. And many times, too often, people who are feeling bereft of hope and far from God have felt that way because this Bible remains closed. And then, though they know God, they don't remember His promises and they don't remember what kind of God He is and how sacrificial and loving and faithful and good He is. And it's never been about you being good enough. It's always been about the goodness of God on your behalf. 
and every promise that God made is kept in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's made in writing, but it's kept in the flesh. That's why Paul, a former Pharisee, a Jew, a religious Jew who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, wrote this in 2 Corinthians. Read it with me. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. See how simple that is? Every single promise that God has made when Jesus appears finds its yes in Jesus Christ. Everything that God has ever promised or ever will, every bit of your good future and your hope and your forgiveness and the new identity He died to give you to make you part of His family, everything that God has ever promised you finds its yes not in you, not in you figuring it out, not in you making it better. The promises of God are meet a resounding yes in Jesus Christ. So what do you do with all this? Well, if you're already on the path, if you're following Jesus, you need to look at Him and remember at what cost and with what humility He saved you. That'll help you rearrange the perspective of everything hard that happens in your life. A God who loves like this, who works like this in human history, who chooses to make promises that you don't deserve and then keep them at the expense of His own life, death, and resurrection, surely that God will continue being faithful to you in whatever temporary suffering engulfs you now. And I'm not minimizing it. And I'm not competing, I'm not trading stories with you. Some of you suffer so greatly, I marvel at how you bear up under it. But you're not listening to a guy who's got it all figured out and who never has any trouble. I sometimes have trouble sleeping too. I sometimes look out in the distance and wonder how it'll all work out. But when I remember the promises of God that have already been kept in Christ and all the promises that await me in eternal life because Jesus died and rose again for me, that suffering doesn't disappear, but it comes into the right perspective. So those of you who are already following Jesus, go to the promises, remember what He has told you, and remember He's going to keep it all, and He already has in Christ. And the rest of you, if you're not following Jesus, you're in one of those two ditches. You're here and you're not sure why because you don't really need that much saving. You're doing pretty well and you think maybe this will help. Respectfully, lovingly, humbly, Jesus is much bigger than that. He's the only one who can save you. This church can't. This broken, messed up, saved man who's telling you about him, he, I can't. All I can do is point you to him. So my invitation to you is to be humble, to identify yourself as one who Jesus came to save and to say, Jesus, I'm being honest with you. I do have sin. I have sinned. I feel that shame. I feel that guilt. It's real to me. Here it is. I'm turning away from it. I'm giving it all to you, and you start following him. You'll discover that every promise he ever made is true. Let's pray. If you're a follower of Jesus already, and you've been a little, as I have, under the, under the burden and under the stress, and maybe the season isn't helping, 
And you feel kind of bad about that because you should be happier. It's Christmas time. But you've been feeling the burden and the weight. Could I invite you to remember what this genealogy teaches you? That you're saved because God promised he would do it, that nothing could stop him, and that he's already kept that promise fully in Christ? And if you don't know Jesus, I'm specifically asking you to turn around. I'm not asking you to change religions. I'm not asking you to join this church. I'm asking you to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. And say to him in prayer, Jesus, here I am. All my sin, guilt, shame, however you experience it, he understands. If you don't know how to pray, he understands your move toward him. You're turning around toward him. It's a person-to-person relationship. And you can just tell him, Jesus, I need saving. This pastor's been calling you a savior. He's been calling you a rescuer. Rescue me. Save me. And he will. That's what he does. That's why he came. And if you do, please let us know, just as a personal favor, so that we can help you and encourage you and pray for you. Take the card that's in the bulletin, and having identified yourself and turned yourself over to Jesus, fill the card out and give it to us either in the basket or in the back of the room or in one of the boxes before you leave. That won't do anything. It's just a very simple little human way for you to identify and put a stake down in the ground saying, today I gave up on myself and I started following Jesus. I started following the Savior. You'll be part of God's family. And the rest of us, messed up as we are, We'll celebrate because we'll understand what God just did for you and we'll pray for you and do all we can to help you. Father, would you reach out to those who need you this morning? Whether they're in your family, your sons and daughters, they need encouragement and hope and peace. Speak to them now, Lord, as I pray. For those disciples who still identify and feel broken, tired, thank you for keeping all of God's promises for us. And for those, Lord, in the room who are struggling between continuing to go their own way and turning back to you, give them grace and humility right now, I pray, Jesus, to say yes to you, no to themselves, no to their old life, and yes to you. And help them identify that and own that so that we could celebrate along with you that you have saved someone else. This offering, Lord, this song, this is all for you. It's worship, it's gratitude. Receive it in the name of Jesus. Amen.